0: No, my hooky mic, yeah, the fold. I'm duncan my guest this week is Alice Nedden, Uh, of Alice Neddin's bad news fame and starstruck fame and just so many other great things over the past few years. I truly think she's one of our most gifted and original um, comedic voices to have emerged over the last decade or so. Uh, and as she forced me to do at the end of the episode, if you listen right through. Uh, I should declare a, a massive, great honking conflict here in that uh, Alice Hidden's Bad News Season 3, which is airing on the spin-off, is a show of which I'm an executive producer and uh, you know, and we're intimately involved with the production company, Hexway Productions as well. But the show is really good and uh, I think that a lot of the time what we we discuss here is the sort of evolution of Alice Hidden's Bad News. It kind of... It hit audiences because it had this absolute moral force to it, and you know, it had these kind of electric interviews, most famously I said, and just kind of destroying Don Brash in a way that really does stand up, and he, he, he needed it. Um, but there, she just kind of went into it to to these situations, you know, with a with a real kind of fire in her, and it, it was tremendously entertaining, and then. Over the course of the series, particularly this this new season, which um, which starts on the spinoff tomorrow, she kind of gets to a point where she doesn't know exactly where the truth lies, and and a lot of it is about her sort of wrestling with that. You know, whether it's her getting older or you know finding subjects who, whose arguments are compelling. It's it's a it's a really, really, or just finding herself kind of complicit in a in a different way. So you know, she talks about about wealth and about meat, for example, and you know, and about how she's increasingly wealthy and cannot, for the life of her, stop eating meat, even though she knows it's wrong. And that that just feels like it's of a piece with the with the vibe of where society is heading now. So that's really what we talk about um, in this episode, and about how you find you know how a show evolves and and how comedy uh can can sort of still find a way through in in an area that doesn't have the sort of natural kind of black and white divisions potentially that um that that it did initially uh yeah so that this is alice snedden discussing bad news season three on the fold Tēnā Alice Sneddon, and welcome to The Fold.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: So, we're here to, to launch Bad News, comes out tomorrow, mm-hmm. and uh, neither you nor the director Leon are even in the country. Yeah. What, what the fuck?
1: Um, it's a shrewd power move on our behalf, where we're playing hard to get <laughs> with the local television industry and its viewers in the hope that the more we appear to be nonchalant, the more they'll come at us. Uh, You'll see a lot of programs out there these days really promoting themselves. And we thought, why not try something different?
0: (laughs) Just hide it under a bushel.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: So bad news is obviously like... About as personal a show as you can get. It's literally got your name in the title. Yeah. Tell me how you originally pitched it to TVNZ. Um,
1: I originally pitched it to TVNZ as a show called What? Uh, Three question marks. What? How? Me? Um, (laughs) And uh, it was like I pitched it as basically like looking into civic and political issues and then how they specifically affected me (laughs) Um, as I guess like skewering or satirizing, like millennial culture. I mean, this was, a. I want to make clear that this was like a 2017 pitch. So, you know, it wasn't done by then <laughs> um, to say millennial. But, um, yeah, so that was the idea. I mean, it was really born out of the fact that I was, I had done university and I'd done a degree and then I'd got into comedy and I wasn't engaging anymore with any of the things I was engaging with at uni. And I kind of missed it because I, I love that stuff. And um, yeah, and none of my work was like skewered towards that. So it felt like a um, not an inevitability, but just like something I desperately wanted to do.
0: It's interesting because it's quite a challenging show, like, it almost. And the, particularly the first season, when you, especially when you think about TVNZ being unavoidably and probably necessarily the most normie platform that we have, was yeah. there <laughs> was there any tension between like making this really kind of quite aggro and confrontational show for yeah you know the big state broadcaster?
1: Well, I think I was blissfully unaware of a lot of the potential stuff behind the scenes. Like I do remember running into. A lawyer in the foyer and he's like, well, I've just been off the phone with uh, New Zealand blood. And I was like, hey, I thought they loved me there. But, you know, so there was a bit of that, I think, behind me that I didn't know. And a bit that was probably I was shielded from because of the producer. But certainly I had some conversations with people where they weren't um, as hot on the content I was making as I was. Uh, weird. It was a kind of a weird show, and that the person who commissioned it and I had nothing to do with this, but left halfway through <laughs> the show to get a bigger and better job. um And so the people who were looking after the latter half of it, I think, were a bit like, "What on earth is this? And how has this been landed?" And now, yeah, you can imagine if you weren't
0: like as invested in it, or if you just inherited it, you're like, "Oh, this." thing has and I, please don't take this the wrong way. Doesn't it's not gonna be like a, a seven thirty PM hit, but it definitely has the potential to ruin my career. Thanks, Amy. Yeah
1: honestly I don't know if it was gonna be a hit at any time of the day um, it's, it's not uh, I, and to be and to be fair I mean that was um, i I mean full credit to amy and, and what they were doing at the moment i I want to say it was called young blood but maybe I'm just getting confused because there's also a recording artist called that but um uh, there was like some program there about getting like what' young blood. P- it was young blood, yeah, getting people into stuff. And I don't know if this was strictly speaking a part of it, but they felt very much like a culture there at that, like, brief sliver of time where it was like, hey, do you want to experiment with stuff? And that we just slipped into there. And, like, it was quite a haphazard. Um, that first season, I mean, I was recording it in my lunch break from John and Ben, often. So, like, I would run away and do an interview and then come back and, like, you know, if you look at the season, almost all of the interviews are like in a TVNZ building or a public park. You can get for free. Um, I think the budget was pretty tiny uh, because uh, I mean it wasn't paid a lot. <laughs> it was, but it was like I don't know. It was the most fun. Yeah, it was incredible. It was an incredible experience.
0: Do you think that there's a space for more of that in in New Zealand? Because it feels like to make a thing, it almost requires a level of engineering that that makes it a bit more costly whereas you know so there's a there's a kind of a punkish DIY part of me that thinks if you could just give a bunch of people some smallish bundle of money and accept that some of the things yeah. that can be disastrous and, un- and unerable but that you might also just give people a shot and let see let them see how they can run.
1: I mean my honest answer to that is like yes and no because I think what comes at the expense of low budgets is that they can look like shit from time to time. And, you know, bad news benefited from the fact that it was an interview show. So it doesn't um, require a huge production budget in in that sense. Um, I would say for me, like, yeah, it's incredible if you can give people opportunities by going like, hey, we're going to put up 50 or 100K and accept that that might be lost. For me, like, the the bigger issue about the television industry in New Zealand is like what happens once people get some of that experience under their belt is like transferring that into bigger budget stuff. And I think I can only speak to my experiences that like that's, a, that has always felt a little bit trickier. Um, I mean, and I've had, I've had like a, 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 um, a an enormous amount of luck in my career <laughs> um, too much really. Uh, and I don't even want to speak to it in case they take it all away, <laughs> but um, from from watching other people and just seeing how the system works, I think, is, to me, it seemed less about going, like, throwing, you know, small amounts of money at lots of people and more about, like, when you do find a creative who does take an opportunity like that and go with that, what's the plan with them post, you know, that small show? I,
0: I just want to drill into this because I find it really fascinating. It, and you're... In some respects, quite well placed to speak to it, and that you don't, you know, given the way that your career has developed, you're not as dependent on the opportunities that exist in New Zealand. You've literally abandoned us. Um, and
1: <laughs> I, w- I want to make it clear I will still take any job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, that, that's good to know for those who are listening with jobs. Um, but the, it does feel like there the industry as far as it relates to the comedy scene it, there are a lot of kind of I guess on some level like comedy game shows which, which exist as opportunities yeah. for people but the the making a show like Star Strike or something it's harder to imagine yeah. it happening in New Zealand like what what is your sense of, of the kind of gap between what TV wants to air or, or platforms want to air and comedians yeah. want to make
1: I, it's hard to know because I think like so the thing that's had a huge impact of it, on it, obviously, I, I mean, and I, I I should preface this by saying I have no academic of knowledge on this at all. I just have my own personal opinions that are unfounded in anything by what suits my narrative. But in saying that, <laughs> the streaming services have obviously had a big impact on it and that we don't have the same sort of um, monoculture anymore, I guess, where, like, television networks had the opportunity to lead culturally what we were interested in. And I think sometimes the impact of that is um, undervalued because what's happened is that as, you know, more options have become available, then these networks and platforms are seeking, like, what do audiences want instead of, like, leading at the forefront of going, like, let's let's give them something they don't know they want yet but show them that that's what they want. And I think there's, like, a certain... um, that kind of, like, uh, competition, I guess, the idea that not everyone is limited to, you know, three channels at 7.30 means there's a lot more um, kind of catering to, uh, I don't want to call it the lowest common denominator, but I can't think of another, <laughs> um, uh, another no, way totally of putting say that. It. And yeah. this isn't to be, like, scathing of it. It's my criticism as well of, like, politics at large of going, like, You know, politicians are constantly looking for ways to get votes and so they're seeking the opinion of the populace in order to understand what their policy should be instead of deciding on what the policy should be and then working on the best way to sell that to the public. And I kind of think the same with TV is that I mourn a little bit of going like we're going to be a cultural... um, advocate or like a cultural leader and try and bring people along with us as opposed to catering to what they already think they want.
0: Yeah. It's a level of risk aversion ultimately. That, that- It
1: is. And I, and I understand it because of like the market, you know, and I, and I understand that, but it, I think it's a shame as well. I think sometimes it gets lost in the mix of going like, oh, there are people who don't have any idea about that sort of shit, but who could make you really great stuff. Yeah, Maybe you won't get to know about it.
0: It's interesting, right? Because if I think about New Zealand comedy historically, it's basically been super weird the whole time. Like we we haven't specialised in... <laughs> while we can do broad, it's not really what you'd say that we're you know most interesting and, and kind of best at. And yeah. the fact that the, the emphasis really pushes broad now is um, potentially leaning away from our strengths, which is not what you tend to try and yeah. do.
1: And I will say, like, the ability to be a comedian or, like, an entertainer who has any sort of broad appeal, to me, is, like, is like a magic trick. And there are people who can do it. And, it, like, their talent is, like, not to be underestimated because, like, by its nature, I think comedy is, like, divisive. So if you can get someone that a lot of people are on board with or you can get a format or a program, I'm like... Oh, that's that's incredible to me,
0: so just getting back to to bad news, which potentially less people are on board with than than a show like like seven days <laughs> um, but I think that's why it's also so yeah. beloved by those those who have encountered it did, did you revisit the first couple of seasons when you were coming to make this or or what do you think of? the the sort of Alice and that made those? Because I, I think there's a journey <laughs> that you went on here and I want to kind of dig into that a bit.
1: I mean, I, I don't yeah, I'd be interested to see how perspe- perceptible it is to other people, but I certainly felt it more in the making of it this season than I have in any of the others, is how differently I felt about making it and the process of it and what that was like and the tackling of the issues. I mean, I've watched clips, I've watched the second season, you know, I've watched them all kind of, every now and then I just like have a little watch of them but I don't I don't love to watch myself once it's done and it's out there because I can't change anything but I would say I like um was uh, I don't know if I was more gutsy in the first season or just like um less nuanced or I more self-righteous or something like there was definitely like I don't think it's that I'm less passionate about things now but I feel like I can see more sides of things now in a way that I don't know is necessarily useful for like activism or advocacy. Or, um, but that's been really interesting. That, and this was like throughout the whole process of doing this season. I was going to like Leon, who's the director, going like, "It just doesn't feel the same. It just feels different. It feels like strange." And he was like, "I think that's because there are no issues where it's like a clean cut." Cl- slam dunk, this is um the moral righteous uh standpoint. And I think, you know, there's something to be said for maybe I've grown up a little bit and that's maybe a bad thing. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. On the one hand, I'm like, I think the fact that it's more nuanced and shows more sides of things is maybe like a sign of like the culture we're in now and that's like a good thing. And on the other hand, I'm like, is it still the same show? I don't know.
0: But I think that that's what I mean. Yeah, as someone who's, who's watched them all, I find myself really drawn to the kind of moral complexity and ambiguity of the current season. And that if I was to characterize the first season, it was like, this is what Alice, Alice thinks, and she sort of bulldozes mm-hmm. into a room and just tries to kind of <laughs> smash heads to, to get people yeah, to yeah. agree with her. <laughs> In a, in a way yeah. that is tremendously entertaining, whereas yeah. this third season, it's like, man, this is complicated. Like, you and and the interviews are more <laughs> yeah. like, H- how should I wrestle with my own kind of complicity in this very yeah. complicated thing? But it while it's it, so it doesn't have the same kind of. Moral clarity of the first season, it actually has a lot more yeah. sort of nuance and texture to it while still being super funny and having gags.
1: Oh, that's kind. I mean, I, ho- I hope that's the case. And I think, like, honestly, the older you get and the more successful I've got, the more complicit I feel in a lot of the issues that I have um, previously, uh, uh, I want to say lambasted, and I don't know if that's the right word, skewered or um, highlighted. And it's not that I don't think those are true, I think those things deserve to be skewered, but, like, recognising my own, um, how I am holding up a lot of these systems of oppression that I'm then also, on the other hand, like, trying to um, tear down or draw light to has been a really uh, interesting and confronting at times experience. And I think that's you're right about like the moral ambiguity is that's where I do sit on it. But the thing that concerns me a little bit about moral ambiguity on anything is that's um allows for inaction because you're like, Well, who knows what's right? So well, does it or does it doesn't I don't want to end up in that zone.
0: I, I feel like they're you know, that that's where they're kind of radicalism versus incrementalism kind of comes into it. Like do you just sort of yes. chip away at reform and it's not as kind of sexy or exciting but it might ultimately be more enduring yeah. because the other side isn't just immediately trying to tear it down. Uh yeah. the, an episode which I think about a lot which feels like predictive of where it went was um the euthanasia episode in season 2. Yeah. Because that that almost felt like a crystallizer thing where you you know, both Judeo-Catholicism and because this is a, a really complex issue, you didn't know where you stood going into it, and I don't know if you necessarily did coming yeah. out. And even the fact of it getting a bunch of people who disagreed around the table, the kind of civility uh, that and, and, mm. that, and the, <laughs> the, the kind of public wrestling that came out of that, I was like, oh, this, this feels like a different tone and that it almost feels like it, it predicted where the show was headed.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's very true. I mean, the euthanasia was like the kind of the first example, yeah, of, I guess, doing something where I wasn't entirely sure where I stood on it. And then I feel like we've ended up with all of these topics this season uh, where either I'm not sure where I stand on it or I am sure where I'm standing on it, but my actions are not reflective of that. And in some ways I think it is the most personal season because I feel the most personally implicated (laughs) in every episode and you know like we did this season this in this season we'll be doing one on meat for example I think I know that the correct position is not to eat meat and yet I'm I'm still doing it (laughs) and it's and I don't know what it's gonna take (laughs) to change my mind but I know it's wrong and there's so many other things as well, you know, like having done the episode on wealth and about home ownership and stuff, I have felt incredibly conflicted about what do I do. I mean, I do own half of a home with, you know, I bought it with a group of friends, but, like, still, you know, I now I own half of it and I am going, like, I don't know if I can have that and have um, ethical integrity. <laughs>
0: that's uh that, that's interesting and and I mean ultimately that feels like the kind of yeah like like a like a theme for the season you know mm. the, the the i think we maybe talk about that that meat episode do you want to just sort of say where it came from because yeah. there is a real sense of like you know you you're more and more confident that it's definitely wrong as the thing develops <laughs> and more uh, and also there is. No sense that you are going to, to move from that as a, as a I'm going to keep eating this one or two times a day because unfortunately delicious.
1: Yeah. I mean essentially that whole episode came from like when I was in my mid-20s, I read um, I think it was Jonathan Safran Foer's eating animals and I stopped eating meat for about four years and um, then I like, you know, had like a lovely clam and it was just like a slippery slope back into, like, steaks within about a week. And um, since then, I've just been, like, full meat-eating. And I think in my mind, i had always kind of managed this justification of going, like, the New Zealand system feels so much more different to the, um, the international or the American system in general – and then I got a dog and then I like, I've not traditionally been an animal person, you know, I didn't emote a lot for animals, but then I got this dog and I was like, fuck, I actually like, I love this dog. And I, I can't imagine eating this dog necessarily, <laughs> but I'm still eating these other animals. And I can like, I, you know, I, um, I guess I'm anthropomorphizing the dog a lot. And I'm like, why don't I do that with other animals? And I think that was it of going like, you know, I was basically looking for a justification that I could still keep eating yummy food, but that I was morally in the right. And I think what I came away from was like, I'm morally in the wrong. And I've either got to accept that. Or I've just like got to find like one killer veggie that I love more than all meats.
0: (laughs) How's that going?
1: (laughs) I'm really into aubergine these days. (laughs) Aubergine is not
0: gonna get it done, I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) I know, I think honestly sometimes I'm like, the hubris to call a a, a cauliflower steak? I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) No, but only vegetarians
0: would do that because they're sufficiently distant (laughs) from the reality of steak to be able to say, well this is the same broad shape.
1: That's true. That's true, but then also I was surprised in talking to people you know, like the guy who we interview who's a is the kind of sets the standards for animal welfare and farming in New Zealand, you know he does eat meat as well, and he's like a lover of animals who's like dedicated his life to um the you know caring for animals, learning about them, teaching about them, so like either there is like this general cognitive dissonance or these issues are just more complicated than they appear. Probably a mixture of both.
0: Yeah, I think I think so.
1: Also, I will say for the meat episode, I had r- bought a new pair of um, boots that I really wanted to show off on a farm. <laughs> 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 and that was a huge driver behind it. But then in the end, <laughs> we cut all that stuff from the episode.
0: Unbelievable. So another episode which seems to epitomize that or almost does it in reverse is like, like probably the one where you seem to come in with the most moral confidence and then end it completely mm. ruined again was the <laughs> minimum wage exemption, which I thought was like <laughs> yes. so interesting because my, you know, I, like I said, I, I like it when you wrestle with the thing rather than knowing what the thing is. And mm. as you come in, you're like, oh, this is this is inherently terrible and then by the end it feels like you're sort of you know yeah back in the 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 uh moral ambiguity abyss again yeah that 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 felt like a real important episode and one that was was sort of hard for you to get get into in some respects.
1: yeah i mean it's hard on lots of different labels it's hard in like You know, I'm not, I can't represent that community in the sense of like, I'm not from, I don't have um, a disability. I don't have a learning disability. You know, I don't have lived experience of what that's like. And so I think anytime somebody is like talking about or talking to or having an opinion on any issue like that, that you don't have lived experience of, it's like innately trickier, I suppose. And there was a lot that went into that episode of like, you know, over the last couple of seasons, people with disabilities have reached out and been like, hey, you've never done anything on disabilities. And I've gone, and I thought, oh, yeah, you're right. And I think, I wonder if in the back of my head, you know, unconsciously, I've been going like, that just seems like too difficult to touch. And um, so this was kind of a response to that, of going like, what uh, What are we missing here? And so we did um, work with um, people, uh, incredible researchers who also have lived experiences across the board and we you know canvassed a bunch of different issues and minimum wage exemption was one that we landed on because uh, I don't think many people know about it and it does affect just a small portion of the population but it's it speaks I think to like a value system really clearly which makes it um, incredibly interesting and it's also incredibly divisive within, you know, people with disabilities about what their opinions on it is are as well. And, yeah, I mean, it sounds bad. Like, it just does, like, to say, are oh, we going to pay these people below minimum wage because they have a learning disability. Just on the face of it, you're like, well, that's, um, yeah, that's fucked. <laughs> and, and I think I still think that. But then there it, it doesn't seem to be, you know, it was also hard to land on going, like, what is the solution to this, or what is the alternative to this? And well, when you go into
0: the factory, you know you're you're forced to confront the gap between what sounds bad and how it is practiced in, in reality, and you can't really find it. Yeah, you know, like it's quite a different thing to say this this thing should not be to a room full of people for whom it's providing real meaning. And, and, you know, like, yeah. I, I really admire, I forget his name, the, the boss, because you were giving it to him, yeah. and he was sort of absorbing it and returning, you know, in a way that was pretty, yeah. like, it's, it, it makes having an unambiguous kind of moral position on something much harder to sustain when, yeah. when you kind of go through a process like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was a... Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I've forgotten his name as well. Shit, oh, oh, that's so
0: bad. But. It's really bad. Really bad for you. Like, fine for me.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I have the moral high ground here. Can yeah, you
1: just dub it in? Can you, can you foley in his name? Oh, I'm so bad with names. I was once on stage with somebody and um, doing a podcast at the town hall and you had to introduce them for a segment <laughs> In front of the whole theatre I had to be like, I'm so sorry, I don't
0: know your name See, you're a moral moral nightmare For that (laughs) alone
1: I am, I am Um, I mean, that conversation in particular I thought was electric Because, you know, there's somebody here Who's in the middle of it And it was, um, yeah, he had a very strong opinion That was directly opposed to what my opinion was Um, And he was extremely passionate about it And, uh, you know, I think... uh, it's, it, this issue is like an encapsulation of what I like when I'm optimistic about politics I think is the same thing which is that we all want the same outcome but we just have different ideas about how to get there and and that's what th- this felt like to me is like everybody wants ultimately the same thing which is for people with a range of abilities whatever that may mean to live um, fulfilling lives you know and to have the same advantages and opportunities as um anyone and you know I think that in politics like I don't think that somebody who politically disagrees with me necessarily thinks like poor people deserve to be poor or should be poor it's just that we have these different ideas about how to resolve that conflict and I think that's what the minimum wage exemption is an example of of going like you just have different ideas about how to resolve this conflict but I do think that there's like a philosophical um question that it raises to um that it exists you know that this is um, and perhaps it's not so much a reflection on like the government but it is like a wider society you know like of when he puts it to us and going like well do you have any people with learning disabilities you know in your crew and like the answer to that was no Um, i mean obviously we had engaged with people for research but we didn't have them in crew and we wouldn't have done that or sort that out had it not been necessarily for the issue that we were tackling And I think that's, um, you know, something that all people who work in all commerce have to think about is, like, uh, what are you actually doing before you point the finger? Like, what are you doing to help kind of bring about these opportunities or equality? And um, it can be very easy, I think, to lob the blame on other people.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah, I agree.
1: And I don't want to lob it on other people. I'm just saying that to lob it on myself. (laughs) and hope that everyone
0: points the finger at themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that it feels like we moved from an era where it was sort of there was a form of activism that was doing kind of online finger pointing and that was considered to be mm. enough and I think the the season sort of feels like it's moving on from that to saying what 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 is it to to kind of truly get close to this thing. Uh, I actually wouldn't mind just before we go I'm aware that it's it's late like where where uh, where you are. But um yeah. but about talking about rugby, which is an episode five years in the making. Yes. And a similar kind yeah. of thing where like this almost felt in some respects you could feel the tendrils of the first season in it that that I mean in mm. part because you know, there is Alice the five years ago in it. But also you end up in this conversation with Mark Robinson, who's CEO of New Zealand Rugby and this Honestly, had a worse time since uh, since this, <laughs> um, in yeah. any number of ways. But similar kind of a thing where you know you were putting things to him, and I just thought he sort of, I I feel like you ended in this weird, weirdly kind of I don't know if it was a hopeful place, but he certainly seemed open to the criticism and was like, come back and check my homework in a few years' time kind of thing. Tell me the story of that episode because I think it's such a a fascinating one in multiple ways.
1: Well, it it started because the show happened in in 2018 when we were making the first episode um, and we are thinking about issues, you know, that was only a couple of years after the Chiefs scandal. And um, this idea, I guess, that, like, domestic violence rates rose when the All Blacks lost a game and stuff had been a, around for a while and certainly something I had heard. And, you know, from from actually speaking to people, it sounds like that is in part um, a, a myth, like that is just based on like anecdotal evidence. We don't actually have statistics to back that up. But that idea that there was a connection between like violence and rugby was in the ether and I think it still is now, but it felt very potent at that time. And I think personally I felt quite angry about it and about, like, the treatment Um, I had seen people experience, people in my life I knew who had experienced it, and then seen um, what those, uh, what the women who were at the Chief's uh, after-party had experienced themselves, and then the way that they had been treated in the aftermath of that. Um, So it felt just kind of like a natural fit for the show, and, like, the hook for it. Again, this is not... This is an ex- interesting example of how the show come because I wouldn't do this anymore, <laughs> which is that um, <laughs> one of the women who had stripped for them had also agreed to some consensual sex acts um, to be paid for them. And uh, she had had some done consensually and some non-consensually but had been paid for nothing. Um, so I was like, well, let's start the episode with me going to the chief's office and asking for that money for her, which is like... Um, I, I, you could spend ages picking apart the issues with the problematic <laughs> issues that premise from all sorts of different um, point of views. well I just thought like I was like fuck it in a sense you know like let's just go like direct like let's go straight to the heart of it and go like here's one thing we can change and that'll open up a whole bunch of other avenues of conversation and obviously you know the, they weren't great they weren't that happy to see me there and um they invited me in for a chat and uh, I still had the recording of all of that and it was very kind of weirdly, confront I mean, not weirdly confrontational. I don't think I can say that. I mean, of course it was going to be confrontational. And then we got out of there and on the way home I got a call from, uh, I'd given them all of the information of the show and the producer's information, she'd come in with me and I got a call from um, the Sunday Star Times who I was writing a, truly awful column for at the time. <laughs> and um, they said, what are you doing with New Zealand rugby? And and it, it was just a moment of being like I was maybe 20 minutes, half an hour outside of the office, and I'd been immediately contacted by an employer who had nothing to do with what I was currently doing, purely through their connections. They had no idea that I had this column. They didn't know this guy. This was an editor I had not even ever met So then that kind of came became a bit of part of the story at the time, you know, of going like, shit, this is a powerful, it made me feel like this is a powerful organization. This isn't like Mom, Pa, Rugby. This is like, yeah, there are a lot of things at stake for people that don't that aren't at stake for me. I don't understand the stakes of this. And so we did a whole episode on that. And, you know, we interviewed a rugby team of boys and Fuck, I'll be honest, they said some fucking horrible shit in a way where I was like, this is not, you know, progressing stuff forward. Um, This doesn't look like things have moved on. You know, I had a confrontation on the phone with New Zealand Rugby, which we showed bits of it of, in which I am a lot more self-righteous there than I would ever dare to be now. (laughs) And then in the end, you know, TVNZ decided against putting it out.
0: Do you have a sense of why that was? Because... Because there is, I feel like the, the the secret power of New Zealand rugby and its relationships with institutions and media is not something that is particularly well known, and you glimpse it through this episode, and that's one of the sort of like a sort of a B narrative oh. that I think is quite quite interesting for people, and and I took pre credit to to Matt Robinson, the new CEO. I think he's aware of that but also doesn't want it to behave in quite the way that it did in that, that first era anymore. That He wants it to be a sort of a
1: yeah. citizen
0: rather than this kind of, you know, yeah. bully-ish kind of force.
1: I mean, the stuff with Mark Robinson is I was – there's kind of a part of me that's like, beware the affable guy <laughs> because, like, he is so affable and, like, charming and easy to talk to but I'm like, there is very little action yet that backs up a lot of those platitudes. And I think that's why he has to say come back in five years and see what we've done because he can't say over the past five years here's what we've done. But uh, this idea of, like, soft power is, I guess, like, soft power exists in, like, all parts of our culture, you know, and it it can happen just through, like, celebrity or politicians or, I mean, I would kind of understood it, I guess, more in the, Uh, context of like big corporations or institutions, but that is what New Zealand rugby is, and I think the cultural power that they exert and the um, ratings power that they have the potential, the media interest that they have the potential means that they do have like a lot of leverage compared to other institutions, and it is unregulated leverage like all soft power, it's unregulated it's it's discretionary I guess, Mm. and I think, yeah, that was my first experience and I of that, of going like, oh, there are larger things at play here because, you know, I think this is still true of me, but at the time nobody knew or cared who I was or, like, knew about the show. Like, I think the only marketing for bad news was, like, a $1,000 spent on Facebook push where my name was spelt wrong. <laughs> so, like, it wasn't, <laughs> like, it was, you know, the Guardian coming in and, like, doing a huge expose on this, It was like this, you know, mid-range comedian having an opinion. And ultimately, I don't know why TVNZ pulled it. I think they felt like that it was unbalanced. And I would have argued the whole show was unbalanced. It was an opinion column. Like, (laughs) that was the point of it. It was like, what do I think about these issues? Watch me talk to people about these issues. I think part of it suffered because you know the commissioner did leave, so the person who took it over didn't quite understand the categorisation of the show. Um, at the time, I was I was very intent on this idea that TBNZ didn't want to put out anything that would damage their relationship with New Zealand rugby, and you know I don't have anything really to concretely say that is the case except for I had a meeting with people where they assured me that wasn't the case, and then I was forwarded emails where it was raised as an issue. So I'd kind of been assured that it wasn't an issue and that that would never be an issue, and that I had, like, physical proof that this had been raised as an issue. And whether or not that played a part in their final decision is unclear, and, you know, it may not have. This is all, like, as an element of conspiratorial, like, <laughs> um, stuff to this, but I can just say that, like, my own experience uh, was that that sort of thing wouldn't be out of reach, uh, that I had felt what was interesting about that was that how intimidated I felt even when there was a structure around me. So if I was just, like, an individual who had a genuine complaint um, with this organisation, I think it would be incredibly intimidating to feel free to express that. And so that's kind of where the episode ended up. Like when we conceived of it in 2018, it was really about just this relationship between, like, I guess, violence and um, violence against women, and if there's any connection or not to kind of masculinity and sports. And and it's ended up kind of going like, how does this big institution? How do we regulate them? And how do we hold them accountable? And then how do we make sure that they have a positive influence on things? Because there clearly is an issue still with it. And again, this is not me saying we shouldn't watch rugby or whatever, but I think we have a role as people who are consuming it to um, hold them to a pretty high standard.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because I mean, in almost all the other dimensions of of episodes of the show, the ultimate arbiter is the government. And with rugby it's Mm. it's new zealand rugby at least you can change your government or you can kind of impact it with your vote with new zealand rugby you're it's a lot less direct your ability to kind of impact the the relevant institution Hey Alice, thanks so much for yeah. for this. I feel like I've, I've Is it light outside? Like what's going on in 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 England right now? Like, cuz it seems like it's light there. Um
1: it's nighttime. It's nighttime.
0: Yeah, that's what I assumed, it's, but then there, there's something yeah, about the light playing off the curtains. So I was like, is it still like is it Oh, I see. Yeah, it was it was it was No, I'm on the it.
1: other side of the world. And
0: and you're saying it's yeah. night. I don't understand. Yeah, it's is, night. This is, yeah. This is crazy. <laughs> um well thank you for staying up at staying up at night of course uh to to talk to us really appreciate it and uh i know this is supposed to be the end of bad news but there's a part of me that thinks that this sort of journey into kind of moral chaos that that you're on might might demand (laughs) a return as either a special or or something (laughs) yeah
1: uh, what I would genuinely love is if I could carry on in some way doing the moral ambiguity stuff. And there was somebody who was younger than me with a different lived experience to me who could come in and do the like moral, um, uh, what's certainty? <laughs> who could come in and be like, uh, like the torch in a sense need to be passed. I'll, I'm happy to hand over the name. <laughs> 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 I'm more than happy to resign to somebody who wants to make the show and has that kind of, like, fire and certainty. I would love to see that.
0: So if you're listening and that's you, uh, Amber at (laughs) Hexwork Productions is available for bidding (laughs) on the free rights to Alice Alice Netson's Bad News IP. (laughs) Uh, thank you so much, Alice. This was real fun, and it's it's honestly an amazing show. Thanks, it, it's, Duncan. It's definitely not where it started, but I think that the fact that it's gotten so kind of comfortable in the weeds is a real credit to you and the whole production.
1: Oh, that's so kind. And have you um, disclosed your uh, bias
0: here? Oh, the, <laughs> the fact that Hexwork that, uh, Productions is... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, under, under my control, yeah. and that I'm an executive producer on the show. I don't think people are interested in that. That doesn't seem relevant. No, nah,
1: nah, you're <laughs> right, and it has no bearing but on your opinion not. of the
0: product. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make a declaration up top. Okay. That's fair. That's fair.
1: Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it I've got a certain level of integrity I need to protect. Well, yeah.
0: n- now you do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the fold was brought to you by the spinoff podcast network. It was hosted by Duncan Greve. Produced by Tihe Butler, with production management by Rachel Naru and series production by Jane Yee. Kia ora e te iwi. Butler here, podcast
0: manager at the spin off.